The last faculty person I met with was Dr. Holmes, and after hearing so many challenging cases, we took a step back and thought about some of the research directions that hopefully will improve the care of these patients. Dr. Holmes has done a great deal of work with neoadjuvant therapy and currently has a trial looking at patients with HER2-positive disease, and she began by talking about the utility of this type of clinical research. One of the things about the neoadjuvant HER2 trial is we cannot afford the time or the money to get the answers to clinical questions. And so we have to figure out a way to shortcut that. And of course, the neoadjuvant platform is one such way where we'll get clinical answers with PCRs and we'll get molecular correlates. But this is so perfect at this meeting because we need our surgeons. And in the community, we don't always get them. It's very different than in academics. You've done work, though, looking at whether it's even feasible to obtain tissue in the community-based setting and study it for genomics or whatever. Can you talk about that and what your experience was? Yes, we are presently in our second protocol. The first protocol was in all comers before the impact of the intrinsic subtypes was so clear to us. And that was a much easier trial to do because if you're looking at all comers, locally advanced breast cancer, at least larger cancers, are easier to find than our present trial, which is a HER2-only trial. And it really... I think depends on the energy, persuasive powers, and enthusiasm of the principal investigator because I think the surgeons are out there, they're willing, they are just in general very busy. And as you're aware, breast cancer is not one of the places that surgeons can make a good living at generally. You know, they're paid less and less. Breast cancer is a difficult disease to treat because they have to spend so much face-to-face time with patients, and it's a lot easier to do a bowel infarction in the middle of the night. So it did take a lot of energy and effort to get accrual going, but once accrual began to get going, the surgeons were delighted to be a part of that. Am I correct in saying that you are running a neoadjuvant HER2-positive trial right now? Yes, we're doing a trial that we initiated after our previous trial, and this is a trial that addresses the question of, number one, can we define molecular correlates of these HER2-positive breast cancer patients by giving a window of anti-HER2 therapy, doing a biopsy up front, two weeks of anti-HER2 therapy, doing a second biopsy just to look at the changes, especially phosphorylation patterns, stem cell changes with the anti-HER2 therapy followed by standard anti-HER2 chemotherapy with either, just as the B41, trastuzumab alone, or lapatinib alone, or the combination of both. And then the percent of PCR at the end will be one of the important endpoints. And of course, lapatinib is a recent addition to anti-HER2 treatment. It's an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor of HER2 The ALTO adjuvant trial is comparing it to trastuzumab and the combination of the two. What did you look at in your first translational study? Our first trial was in all comers. It was designed to look at whether we could have more effective therapy with an epirubicin-based regimen and if the combination of docetaxel and capecitabine would be more effective than a taxane alone. And the molecular correlates of that study were to send tissue to Dr. Lyos-Pustai for gene expression array. 
And after Dr. Laos Pustai's original presentation that just floored everybody at ASCO when he showed that beautiful picture of these are the patients who responded, and they're green and red, and then these are the patients who didn't respond, and they were red and green, we thought, wow, you know, we are just on the verge of being able to do like a urine culture and sensitivity for a breast cancer patient when they come into the office. But, of course, as the subsequent trial with Dr. Bustar's PFEC trial showed with Herceptin, Once you stratify for the major variable, which is HER2 status, then there's no robust indicator of response. It was really somewhat disappointing to us, although he did something called gene set enrichment analysis, GSEA, that were able to show clusters of genes that gave you information. But it turned out, as it always is, it's not a simple thing. It's not a little black box. Let's talk a little bit about some of the clinical research developments in the last couple of years that are affecting the way patients are being treated and the way trials are being designed. And again, maybe a little bit more from the perspective of the surgeon. So if you had a surgeon sitting down with you having a cup of coffee and say, you know, hey, tell me, what are the things that have happened in the last, let's say, year? in terms of clinical research in breast cancer that you think are important for me to know about? What are some of the things that would pop into your head? Let's start out talking a little bit about HER2-positive disease. What are your thoughts about the issue of neoadjuvant therapy in a non-protocol setting for a patient who has a HER2-positive tumor in terms of the type of treatment that generally is considered and in what situations a patient might be treated neoadjuvantly as opposed to adjuvantly? I think it's interesting when I was reviewing some of the literature because I saw a remark by Dr. Burstein saying, well, the only indication for preoperative therapy is if you're going to try and save the breast. Whereas Dr. Hortobaji has said in the past, if you are going to be giving a patient adjuvant therapy, there's every reason to use neoadjuvant therapy in the appropriate patient because you will learn about the patient's response. Personally, I think neoadjuvant therapy is a very reasonable option because of the biologic information it gives us, it gives the patient. In the appropriate patient, obviously, you can't have patients that are not going to be compliant because until that tumor is out of that patient, you really can't sleep. So, however, most patients do not have neoadjuvant therapy because the surgeons see them first. And secondly, and wonderfully, we're seeing a lot more smaller tumors. And that, of course, is the subject of one of the papers. And I can tell you, I was just on the email before I came with my own group because we constantly have these how small is too small to treat issues. And we all have those horrible stories of the two millimeter that now presents seven years later with a liver down to her pelvis. Can you talk about what's going on right now in terms of adjuvant therapy? for patients with HER2-positive tumors? What are some of the issues that people talk about? What are some of the clinical research ideas that are being looked at? So right off the bat, the most important issue really is what is the role of anthracyclines? And U.S. Oncology is engaged in really a landmark trial looking at that in the non-HER2-positive patients to help define that. In my own mind, I've had a number of pyrrhic victories, that is, patients saved from their breast cancer who have other complications from anthracyclines. So I think we are waiting, of course, for the final publication of the data about the TCH, but in my own mind, whenever I have an opportunity to use a non-anthracycline-based regimen, I'm using that. I think the issue of how small is too small to treat is a huge issue that we all struggle with, 
And basically, the answer is molecular correlates. And those are really going to be coming around the corner. So we really need these trials where we're sending in, just like the B41, they require core biopsies. Most all the trials now are requiring those core biopsies. I think the issue of the duration of therapy is going to be so important based on the provocative data that Finn her trial. uh, Could you explain what that study looked at? So that study looked at the duration of therapy, and the really amazing thing was that there was only nine weeks of anti-HER2 therapy, and yet it appears that the patients got the same benefit as patients who were treated for longer. Of course, I don't know when the HERA trial will report the two-year arm, but that's going to also be useful. The other issues... Um, I guess I should just interject the HERA studies looking at with two years versus one year trastuzumab. Right. And that is a unique trial from the U.S. trials in that it is not concurrent therapy because that's the other issue that the NOAA trial and the MD Anderson trial beg. Well, if anthracyclines are the most effective therapy, should we use them concurrently? And I think we have to be careful. The MD Anderson trial was such a wonderfully enthusiastic 67% response in the randomized group, but then the next group had a little lower response, so the overall was 60%. But these were, by and large, T2 tumors. 75% were T2 and 50% were node negative. And I guess what they did there that was controversial was to use an anthracycline and trastuzumab together. Which is what Dr. Gianni did when he looked at the NOAA trial. And that was just reported at San Antonio. right. And the concern is that this is a lot more cardiac toxicity. And when we look at the people in clinical trials, they are followed much more carefully. They may not be representative. And as Sharon Hunt was so eloquent in showing, she's the cardiologist from Stanford who deals with the heart transplants. 5% of heart transplants are from adriamycin. We really, if we're going to be curing these patients, and we know they're going to get obese, they're going to get hypertension, diabetes, they're going to need their cardiac reserve. So I think we have to be very careful. Lapatinib is very exciting in this arena because it may have less cardiac toxicity, but maybe, you know, will it be as potent? Certainly the data that Joyce O'Shaughnessy presented at the last ASCO, I think it was, with the combination dual blockade, just that alone. It was with lapatinib and trastuzumab. Exactly. And that had significant benefits. And I can tell you, many of us are using that in these patients for whom the DM1 is not yet available. But of course, there are new drugs that are coming out, the pertuzumab. I think the diagnosis of HER2 positivity is also an area that is very exciting. HERMARC is a new test that has come out, and it looks at HER2 by a different methodology. And not only that, it subtypes HER2. So we are now thinking, gee whiz, is this a tumor that's primarily HER2 dimers, or is this a tumor that's driven by HER2, HER1, or HER3, HER2. And so, well, gosh, if HER2 fails, maybe it's a no-brainer because this is a tumor that's primarily HER2, HER3, and we're not really blockading what the problem is. So I think diagnosis is an issue. And every answer has a whole new set of questions that it engenders. And so one of the things that's been so interesting in the HERMARC data was that you get five different groups of HER2-positive patients, some of whom are FISH-positive and HERMARC negative, et cetera. And so what really is HER2? Dr. Lance Leota has some really exciting data where he's looking at where the rubber meets the road with HER2, and that is you've got to see the phosphorylation patterns in the cell. Otherwise, it's like a placebo knob on your television. And so the sad thing is there are patients who have this great amplification, they're nine plus by fish, but they're dead kinetically inside the cell. How do you pick those people out? The Herceptin isn't going to help them. 
So I think duration, diagnosis, combination therapies, and of course, what is the appropriate type of therapies? I think Steve Jones's little trial that we participated in the TC versus the AC, in which they looked at subsets, albeit small ones, and found that the HER2 positive patients did not do worse with the TC, again, helps us think, gosh, maybe we're going to have some very neat, tight treatments for these patients. Let's talk a little bit about ER-positive disease and endocrine therapy. Can you summarize some of the things that have been reported over the last year and sort of where we are right now in terms of standard approaches to pre- and postmenopausal patients? Well, I think for postmenopausal patients, the overwhelming data suggests that the aromatase inhibitors are superior. Now, having said that, I think that the analysis by the folks at Farber looking at the tamoxifen and the 2D6 data, which was obviously retrospective and was a statistical model, where they took out the patients that are known to be 2D6 poor metabolizers. So 10% of Caucasians of North American ancestry are poor metabolizers. And therefore, when they take tamoxifen, it's a dud because it is an inactive drug. It's a prodrug. So when they did this elegant study and were able to model taking out those patients, there did not appear to be any difference between the tamoxifen and the aromatase inhibitors. Another interesting paper that was presented at San Antonio was by Elisa Madursky, who showed that when people look for biologic correlates, hot flashes, etc., as an indicator that patients are having a response to the tamoxifen, they're activating it, it was found not to be the case of the patients who had hot flashes. There were a large percentage who were not metabolizers. It's simply that patients get hot flashes, you know, as we go through life. So you can't really judge by biologic side effects. The other issue that is very interesting is the finding now that there are many patients who have developed carpal tunnel syndrome or other very discrete collagen vascular problems related to the aromatase inhibitors. Again, C19, I think, is the enzyme that is related, is the aromatase enzyme, and there are multiple polymorphisms of that. A Dr. Ma at the Mayo Clinic has looked at that, and I think we're going to have to, again, you know, not look at these things as on or off switches. There are some patients that probably have different polymorphisms, and they have a different pattern of activation, and these may be some of the patients that are having much more of the joint problems. I think it will be very interesting to determine whether we really must have the aromatase inhibitors. I think the big trial suggested that if you can get at least two years of the aromatase inhibitors, then if you have to cross over to tamoxifen because you have intolerable side effects that did not appear to be any decrement in benefit, that's very exciting for patients because with the tamoxifen, they're going to have reversal of the bone effects. And secondly, just a really difficult problem is the vaginal dryness. And the study that was shown by Dr. Dowsett's group, I guess, when they gave vaginal estrogen and they showed levels of over 400 in some patients. With tamoxifen, you don't have to worry about that as long as your gynecologist will work with you on following the uterus. I think the other issue that we all have to figure out about is how long do we need to continue endocrine blockade. For some of the tumors like the lobulars where we think, gosh, these are tumors that are sort of like the tortoise and the hare. They just keep going no matter what you do. And it's clear that they go to the bone marrow and that's where they hide out. And therefore, a segue to the key role of keeping the bones healthy and all the work that is now being done with these bisphosphonates and adjuvant therapy, which I think is so important, 
in addition to which the vitamin D levels. We have to do everything we can to keep our patients' bones healthy so that they will be an inhospitable niche for these cells, which they may be there, but they will not be promoted in survival because of the release of growth factors with these bones that are unhealthy. And just another set of really interesting information that came out at AECR with one set of tumors, and I can't recall all the details, but they released rank ligand in the bone marrow. So, hey, denosumab is right around the corner, and there's a huge trial that's going to be coming up, the DCARE trial, where they'll be looking at denosumab compared to zoledronic acid in the adjuvant setting. You mentioned the issue of the duration of the aromatase inhibitors. In your own practice, how do you approach that question outside a protocol setting about whether, say, to continue an AI at five years? Well, it's a heartburn question because most of these patients are not asymptomatic. However, I think after talking to many of my colleagues and thinking about this and also seeing a long-term data, it doesn't look like we're getting these patients into trouble If this is a multiply node positive patient who is at very high risk, I have a discussion with her and I say, gee, we don't know, but we do know that in the MA17 trial, the prolonged blockade looks helpful, even though, again, we're talking about small minorities. But if you are doing well and not having a problem, I would recommend that you continue it for at least five years and we'll have data coming out. In the meantime, we've got to work on your keeping your lipids good and we've got to keep your bones and your vitamin D. Any sense about the level of adherence in patients over time? Do you think that most of them are able to, for example, to get through five years of hormones? Well, you know, they have so many interesting studies on that. And one very key thing that has come out is it is the involvement of the patient-doctor relationship that makes a difference there. And the studies are amazing how patients may be taking maybe one-third of the pills they should be taking. And a really interesting study, I think it was done in Germany, where they had actually a chip inside the bottle. So every time they took the top off, that could be recorded. So they actually had hard data. And another study in Germany where patients got all their prescriptions from the same pharmacy so they knew what they were taking. And yet when the physician would say, well, how are you doing with your medicines? I am taking it every day, doctor. And yet the records would say otherwise. So... Personally, I feel like I am my patient's cheerleader. And when they come into that room, you know, I'm linking up my arm with them and saying, what are we doing? So based on the prescription refill requests I get, I think my patients are pretty compliant. But I don't think that's generally true, especially if the medicines are not easy to take because you feel like you're crippled. Any comment about the issue of the use of chemotherapy in the patient who has an estrogen receptor positive tumor? There's been questions about whether or not, you know, how much chemotherapy really adds to those patients. We have the issue out on the table, potentially the oncotype helping with that decision. Can you talk about your thoughts about that whole arena? Yeah, I think it is very difficult. However, we know that tumors do adapt over time. I think the oncotype is very useful, and I do rely on it, except in that intermediate group for which we hope the Taylor trial will provide some guidance So clearly, using the Taylor, I usually generally apply the Taylor criteria, which are more stringent. That is, if you look at the curves from the B21 that are included in the report that comes with your oncotype, which shows that if your score is 0 to 10, the tamoxifen alone versus the tamoxifen plus chemotherapy curves are identically on top of each other. And then they just begin to splay out that 1 to 4%. And I think 
obviously, no problem, zero to 10, we're not doing any chemotherapy. And obviously, the higher group we are, and it's that one to 4%, where then you just have to look at the patient and have a discussion. What does it mean to you? What does it cost? I think with Steve Jones's TC regimen, I think I have an out in chemo light for many patients. And so for the younger patients that are in that intermediate group, that's the way we go.